Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You are listening to an Irreverent Podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our friends. Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness. And we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. And this is Reverend Anna Galladay. And we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for all of us to get our hands dirty. Pastor. Dr. Robin. We start this the way every week. You think people get tired of hearing me call you pastor? I hope not. I know. I hope not. I mean, I don't want anybody to get tired of me calling you Dr. Robin. Yeah. How are you? One of these days, I'm going to change it up. Yeah. You haven't yet. Daddy or Gramps (laughs) or. um, We got walking. We got. Listen, we got. Miss, yeah, Mr. Sloth. Yeah. <laughs> Any number of things I could I could name you, but we get, yeah. we got walkie talkies, like I told you, for Wild Goose, <laughs> we and did. and we're coming up with code names, and so Good. my code name is Poppy. So on the walkie talkies, it's going to be okay. Poppy has landed. Okay, so so if I want to reach you, I I'm just going to go. <laughs> Reverend the Poppy, come yeah. in, please. Okay, yeah, and and we were we were thinking about like, should we call me Queen? Like the Queen has landed, and that felt a little bit too colonial. And then, <laughs> and that's, then, so that's why you opted not to go with Queen. Yeah, I went for colonial. yeah, I went for Poppy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we we're gonna have a good time with the walkie talkies. Mm. Apparently, they're waterproof. But I'm not going to get in the river with them. I was going to say, what? I'm not sure. I'm curious to know how we will find that out or if we will need to find that out. But you know what? Who knows what's going to happen? So So how does does this week find you? Is that what you were going to ask me? I was. I was. Um, This week finds me doing well. I um, had coffee with someone who we should have on the show at some point, Matthew Paul Turner. Yes. Love MPT. And we met at the Frothy Monkey, which is where we met three years ago in 2018. Great. And and like we haven't seen each other in a while. And, you know, he came out last year. I right. mean, we've we've been texting with each other, but yeah. we, we talked about how there are so many people that we would love to see in the Nashville area, but because of our lives and the way they are, we don't get the chance to see right. each other. Right. So he brought me his latest book so that I could read it. And then he said, I should write a children's book. That you should write a children's book. Can you imagine that? Unfortunately, no. Right. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I mean, half the, pe- half the people who read my stuff don't understand what I write. Right. Can and you imagine? I would give children headaches. You, well, you would give them headaches, or you would lead them down the path of um, non-monogamy and kink, and God knows where that could go. I mean, like, really, like, there's so many possible paths, well, and I just I don't. Mean, I don't know the world's ready for that. Salvation is abundant. <laughs> in my in you, my perspective, you, li- you live you live in a world of abundance, not in a yep. world of scarcity. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how I am. That's how this Tuesday finds me. I had coffee. I had a Havana latte because when I was in Cuba with Alba, we um, I was hankering for a Cuban coffee. And so yeah. place where we were staying uh, made Cuban coffee. And so I was like, oh, let me try a Havana latte. They iced it for me. I had two of them. So I may not need a siesta today because yeah. I have so much I energy. I was going to say so much caffeine in your system. Yeah. But how are you? Well, I I am I will be honest that it has been really nice to laugh for the last three minutes. Um, I am 
um, sitting in some pretty deep grief over a, the very sudden loss of a good friend yesterday. Yeah. Um, who uh, is my age mm. um, and uh, died very suddenly and very unexpected. And I am really sitting with my own mortality in mm-hmm. that. And I think the older I get, the more I am starting to um, uh, fear the immediate um, side of, of death um, more than I am fearing the um, long and suffering side of death, which I don't know if that, I don't, I don't know what to make of that um, because one uh, feels better for the one that's for the, for the person that's going through it. And yet um, it really does um, nothing to prepare those of us who, um, you know, have no chance to say goodbye or to um, kind of tell them we love them one more time. And Mm. so I, uh, I, you know, I had a moment yesterday of, of, I mean, I've had this moment for the last 24 hours of kind of really deep grief. And then I also had a moment yesterday with, um, Mike, where I said, um, uh, while I am gone the rest of this week, I need you to call the attorney. Um, if the wills aren't done by the end of, of August, then, um, I, I, I might decide that, um, that uh, I might reconsider my my twenty five years with you. <laughs> yeah, I just like I'm really like I just am feeling this really weird like mm-hmm. uh, like, um, yeah. It just it makes you wonder like how much of your shit you really have together, right? And I am feeling really uncomfortable um, today mm. and very sad. So yeah. Um, yeah, but so it has been good to laugh with you. Um, I'm really excited about this recording and and how um, and the conversation that I know we're about to have. Um, but you know, it's um, I think that that's what it's like to be human. Now we have mm-hmm. to hold those complexities. We have to recognize that um, you know our role as humans require a multiplicity of um, existences Mm -hmm. out of us. And, you know, yesterday I was, um, his husband's pastor. And so that demand on me was very different than, um, you know, being the friend of someone who died suddenly. And, and so, yeah, it's just this, you know, this, uh, the tentacles of our lives are, Mm -hmm various and sundry and you know we have to sit with all of them we carry them all around we can't we can't lose any of them at any given time so yeah you you know i did something that i don't normally do which is listen to our podcast (laughs) and (laughs) and last week when we had bio on which was an excellent episode everyone should listen to it but in the beginning we talked about my birthday and how i didn't think that i would ever make it to 45 yeah. And when I reached 40, I was really surprised. And, yeah. and, and as I, as I think about my own life, um, and, and you know, I don't, we don't know when we're going to die. We don't, we don't know when our last day is. And so right. I, I feel myself and I, and I, I felt this way when I was doing my PhD that it was such a privilege to sit with books to have long periods of reading and and that that could be my last day and so i really have been treating every day as if it was my last one and so doing everything i can possibly do to do good um yeah do you know be merciful and uh-huh. and do justice right to, to try to be a micah six eight per micah five six person uh-huh. what is it five six seven and eight yeah that those yeah. verses um and um, and I, I feel that more, I feel the weight of that right. more, especially living through a pandemic, um, yeah. because we just don't know, um, yeah. we just don't know what is going to emerge. And so, um, when I got your text yesterday, uh, you know, all I could say was how sorry I was. I mean, I yeah. just was, um, I just was sorry. And the surprise of death, um, yeah. it stings. It does. It does. But, but I am here. We are today. Here we are. And, and I am, I am, 
I found myself capable to sit um, both in the grief and in the anticipation and hope for the conversation we're about to have. Um, We are really uh, honored this week that we are welcoming to the Activist Theology Podcast, the Reverend Dr. Megan Rohr. Um, Megan serves as the Bishop of the Sierra Pacific Synod of the ELCA, which is the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, for those of you that don't know the acronym. Um, I'm, I'm going to only mention this once because it's not who they are, but Megan, uh, it, it is who they are, but it's not all of who they are. Megan is the first openly transgender pastor ordained in the Lutheran Church um, and um, now the first openly transgender bishop um, in a mainline Christian denomination, which is... Um, it's a big deal. Some, it's a big deal. And it's, it's a big fucking deal. It's a big, it is a big deal. Um, but as you all will hear, as we continue this conversation, that is only a small fraction of who they are. And um, we're going to let you tell, we're going to let them tell you a little bit more about themselves as we welcome Bishop Megan onto the Activist Theology Podcast. Hooray! Thank you for having me. It's so lovely to be here. We're so grateful. Let's see. I'm a parent of a seven and eight year old. I'm married. I have a wife, two cats, one of whom might jump on me at some point. And um, yeah, with claws out. So if you hear a yelp, <laughs> that might be what that is. Um, impatient cats. Um, I am a nerd like a super big nerd. Um, so I have a doctorate of ministry studying how pastors organized in the 60s and 70s in San Francisco and um, turned in the first draft of my PhD dissertation in trans theology without apology, studying the ways that folk lifted up trans leaders in early Christianity and in, in the medieval church and the ways that art kind of celebrated that. And um, have also, like, when I've served as pastors, done it in really diverse spaces. So my first call was to four congregations, one of which spoke Spanish, one that was really high church and only called God Lord, one that was super queer and only used gender diverse languages for God, um, and one that is painted purple and called Her Church. Mm. Um I've served in an Episcopal congregation where we got to do creative things to try to help people heal from church trauma. No one's heard of that, right? <laughs> None here. Not on no, this podcast. No, nobody listens <laughs> to this here. podcast, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. And so we, I would use worship services that were, that had enough of the Episcopal bones that they could be, that you could still have communion in an Episcopal church. It's a lot of rules uh, for those of you who are not nerdy. Um, but two settings like Lady Gaga mass mm. or like, a Beatles mask, things that would be singable for folk who maybe hadn't been to church for a little while or get enough like press that people would be like, I need to see that. And then all of a sudden they're like at church again. Aha. Yeah. Um, but also um, I served as a, a chaplain to the homeless and hungry for 12 years in San Francisco, eating with folk and sleeping with them on the streets one week a year. I, um, stayed with folk in, in Nicaragua and learned about poverty in those spaces. I have served as a chaplain for the San Francisco Police Department at the request of the LGBTQ folk, but serving everyone over the last four years. Can't imagine that there's any reason that would be tough. Um, <laughs> uh, but in that work, um, was able to work on their biostrategic plan uh, and the ways that they're committed to strategically decreasing bias in policing and also an intentional apology to the LGBTQ community for unjust policing mm. and unjust laws that exist. And so I'm very nerdy, but I also am someone who's very into like literally marching with folk to get the thing done. Um, I love parliamentary procedure enough to know like which branch of government actually can fix the thing. Oh my God, me too. I know. I'm like, too, I'm a parliamentary procedure nerd. Oh my God. I love reading other ones. (laughs) You too could be a bishop. They give you a gavel. Um, So yeah. So, so I'm someone who has, I think 
I, I would call it like heavy duty translation work to like notice when God is present, even when the world might think some of the ways God is present in our, our mental health issues. And to like, um, when other communities are like, God is present to be like, great, let's march there or whatever needs to happen. And so it's a lot of um, gardening and cleaning toilets. And um, now as in this role of Bishop, it kind of feels like I've always been someone who had all these zany big ideas. And now because my geography spans all the way from the Oregon border down a little past Visalia in, on the California side and then over like through Reno Sparks all the way up to Elko for those who want to pull out a map and look up really rural Nevada spaces. And so uh, it's, a, it's a fun gig and uh, it's a great time to be a trans bishop, I guess. Well, well, you're the only amazing. one that would know that. Yeah, <laughs> you're the only Since one that would the know. the Council of Nicaea, right? Prior to that, tons of trans bishops. Tons, no. tons. So I, I, I think you're an activist theologian. You are getting your hands dirty, uh, which is what we talk about every week here. How how we can get our hands dirty. How we can translate theology to action theory to action, theology to praxis. You are doing that work. I've seen your uh, Facebook lives where you, where you have these moments um, where you're really doing translation work and helping people uh, live out their call. Uh, we are all called. Um, some of us don't know it. Um, some of us ignore it, uh, but we are all called. And, and I'm really curious uh, about you know, we, I come from a Baptist tradition, low church. I have great appreciation for um, more ecclesiastical models. I, I was confirmed Lutheran in the eighth grade. And so technically I am Lutheran because we'll take it. Yeah. Where the confirmation lies is where your membership lies. Also been received into the Episcopal church when I was in seminary, um, but I'm ordained Baptist. Um, you are a bishop, and we often, we often, those of us who uh, are out outlaw people, um, tend to think that when folks are high up on the food chain in ecclesiastical systems, that people like bishops or district superintendents, if you're in the Methodist tradition, or even a bishop in the Methodist tradition. Um, that you're not with people, but actually um, bishops would go around in the early church days and they were actually with the people. And, and I'm just wondering if you could share with us and our listeners how you're living out this vocational path of the bishop by getting your hands dirty, being with people, not just being at people because that's often bishops are seen in in the high holy days, right? Um, and and they're like speaking at people, but but you're actually modeling um, the tradition of bishop in in a very very uh, important way, and and I want to make sure people know about it. So we share with us how you're living out this vocational path and how you're being with the people. Yeah, well, it kind of goes back to kind of. I think my way of digesting kind of the nerdy churchy stuff that, that inspires my heart and figuring out how to translate it goes to like pilgrimage work. So for me, it's been a lot of like world travel, a lot of travel to places where I'm figuring out what's going on, what God is calling me to do, seeing what other communities are up to. And, and it's my best metaphor too, I think for being a trans person of faith is that I can't explain to you but if you take this pilgrimage, you can have your own experience and it's not going to end up at the same spot. We're not going to all like describe God the same way, or we're not going to understand our body the same way. Um, but, but there's something that is a pilgrimage about it. And so my favorite models of, of bishops in the oldie times is, is folk like St. Patrick who was known for being someone who would like walk everywhere 
right? That's why bishops have those big sticks because they're like supposed to be walking and going everywhere. But they would they would give Patrick a horse because they'd be like, you should come visit us more often, which is the number one thing people say to bishops, by the way. Um, and and every time he'd like say, thank you for this horse. I'm going to take your horse and I'm going to visit people. And then he'd immediately give the horse away to like some mm-hmm. farmer who needed a horse to like plow their land or feed their children. And, and then he'd keep kind of walking slowly because that that time that it took to kind of walk through a community was actually getting to know them rather than just showing up with the smells and the bells and the robes. And and don't let me get you wrong, I got fancy embroidery shoes now because Mr. Rogers would want me to do that. But um, for like right for all of the trans siblings that I have who have like never even imagined that a day like this is possible, I got all the parts that you need me to wear to know that it's real. Right. Yeah. So doing that too. But um, have done a lot of visioning and rethinking about like, what does it mean to be the bishop? Like, so normally a bishop would visit people on Sundays and it would take four years to visit all of the congregations that I oversee in, in my really large geography. What I'm going to do is like have events, right? Have you ever been to those church meetings where the most fun part is like the hymn sing? Mm. And then you were like, I don't even remember what the meetings were about, but that hymn sing was awesome. So we're going to like do that. We're going to have days of service together, connecting communities. And then on Sundays, we're going to go to lots of churches. Like my kids now enjoy going to more than one service on a Sunday. I I had to bribe them with hamsters and things like that. Or like like teach them about how you can dip fries into Wendy shakes or the different food that works when you're traveling on the road. But um, to be able to travel to as many places as possible and to really just like be like, what do you love so that I can love it too? And then mm-hmm. I think because my philosophy of being a pastor and being a bishop is that it's not enough to just love people. You have to love what they love. So in some spaces, that means I got to know the giant score. And in some other places, I got to know like which plants are drought resistant and um, can live anywhere. And in other places, I have to know the intricacies about how to make their Wi-Fi work or whatever the thing is that's going to help folk know that I love them by also loving what they love. Like Mm -hmm. seeing myself as a cheerleader, but seeing myself also as a justice agent, because with the power and the privilege, I could sit, I could sit in an office somewhere and do paperwork all day. There's enough paperwork. Um, Or I can kind of prioritize this idea that God shows up when we're with each other. And Mm -hmm. so I've, kind of erred on that side. Um, I think in part because we're living through a pandemic, y'all. Did you know that? Like how many, like, I'm not even going to name all the emergencies that have happened in the last two years, but like, I think folk need chaplains and maybe because I spent a lot of my ministry time as a chaplain that I know that, you know, you can send a card saying, I'm, I'm praying for you while you grieve, but we are people who, if we can't drop off a casserole, we don't know if we're doing it right. And so right. I'm kind of a show up and be with people kind of person or, you know, you can take whatever class on how to solve conflict. And I've taken all those classes. But sometimes I think just today I, I said, well, I think the way to move forward is we should just all go and have a garden day. And maybe we'll talk to each other while we garden or maybe we won't. But we can build trust and be people who like even if we didn't resolve this conflict, like the yard's pretty now, like a tangible right. thing can get done. And I think that's part of what keeps, like we have so much stuff in, in faithfulness or in church lives or in our own house that is so intangible. Like raising my kids is a thing I can't check off a list. I can check off a list like making their lunch. Right. Um, but I think in our faith lives, we need more things that are tangible that aren't just about like, if you showed up at that service on Sunday, you get the credit, right? Um, so like building things, um, cleaning something, all those things that give us happy feelings that make us feel like we were tangibly community with each other. Cause I also think that like faith communities need to leave like little artifacts behind. And maybe the artifacts are plants or, you know, a tile mosaic or um, chalk, uh, right? Or we stomped so hard in our protest that we like left, like it's from the Koine Greek, right? Here's the nerdy part, right? When it says that we are to be leaders who like 
make known the path of God. I think of it in terms of like where I grew up in South Dakota, like you can still see the wagon ruts Mm -hmm. from when people first traveled across the United States. Like what if our thinking about being faithful people was that we were going to leave, we were going to leave a path. Like maybe we're the first ones doing a thing and we got to clear the wilderness, but we want to leave a path with ruts so deep that the other people who needed a path can like follow us and get to the place that they need to go. And that involves like, a shovel every once in a while. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that you have such a robust commitment to community. Um, And I, I, you know, I mean, I have to say, even from my, you know, United Methodist background, um, all of the bishops that, and, and, and leaders in general that I've ever come in contact with are, um, are quick to name the ways that they are in community with the people that they have been called or elected to, to serve. Um, I think what's remarkable about your work, um, and I'd love for you to connect some dots for us if you can, um, is that, you know, not only are you a part of and in some ways responsible for the polity side and the, um, tradition side and the um, kind of ecumenical side of the area in which you serve. But you also have a really um, important opportunity to, in these days, um, be a visible representation for um, what the ethos of God really is, that God looks and is and breathes in ways that are um, not always anticipated or expected. And in a lot of cases, you have found um, ways to do that in the streets, in the midst of um, turmoil, as a chaplain marching and and being a part of the work that um, liberative justice really requires of us. I mean, that the part of the country that you serve is no, um, it, it's not strange to me. I mean, you are, people think of the um, Pacific Northwest as being this um, kind of, uh, you know, beautiful mecca of liberal and, and um, uh, you know, left-leaning agenda. And, you know, everyone supports legal marijuana and everyone supports, you um, uh, you know, gender um, inclusion in all ways, not just from a marriage standpoint. And yet, um, anybody that's ever been to, you know, Eastern Oregon um, or other areas of that beautiful countryside knows that that isn't the case, that there is a, a, a real complexity of, of humans that make up the piece of, of, of country that you serve. And so I'm wondering if you can take us on a little journey on how the last several years has been for you in the height of um, the Black Lives Matter movement, in the height of, um, you know, being someone who on paper to some of your um, congregants or those that are part of the congregations you uh, oversee um, may have never seen anyone like you. And how that work in the street and how the, the work that you've done outside of your office, outside of the paperwork, has really set you up to um, build the kind of community that you just explained to us. Yeah. And I'm part of the reason that I'm able to do some of this work, I should say, is like in thanks to the fact that I have a great family. Right. I have. I have two beautiful black children that I get to like cuddle with each morning and tell them that black is beautiful. And um, one of my children is a black trans child. Um, I have a wife who like um, works one of those steady jobs that like all people who kind of live on the edge and do justice work, like sometimes having a spouse who like can make sure the mortgage payments are paid on time because their job is just like, there's always going to be legal secretaries in the world. Like, that, that that is a really helpful thing to be able to have. Um, and they're kind of up, they're up for some of my shenanigans, right? And so because Lutherans believe that everyone is 
um, a saint and a sinner. Everyone has the capacity to be the worst, and sometimes we are. And everyone has the capacity capacity to be the best, and sometimes we are. But we, our theology is very rooted in this idea that, like, if God did a thing two thousand years ago to like make it all all good to reconcile me, then I don't have a time machine. I can't go back in time two thousand years to screw it up. So if we start from the standpoint of no one can screw up God's love for you, how do we move forward? And for Lutherans, that means let's just do justice work. We can't be people who pray every day for our daily bread and ignore the fact that there are so many people who don't have their daily bread. And so even when we don't agree on politics, we often agree on some of the major justice issues. That helps to have kind of a supportive theology to have um, family folk who can help me so that on the real crap days where um, I get death threats or I get weird things in the mail uh, from people who think I shouldn't be trans anymore and they mail me products they think will whatever make me live into a Barbie-like ideal, which ain't happening. But, But thank you for the stuff you mailed, I guess. I don't know. It's weird, right? Or the days, well, let's just name out loud, I'm a bishop who has to Google whether or not I can go to the bathroom in the place I'm traveling to, right? I'm, I'm a bishop who, when I go to those policy meetings with all the other bishops, someone at TSA is going to push a pink button or a blue button, and depending upon which button they push, they're going to give me a deep cavity search, unless I spend a bunch of money to get in a fast lane and to right, do all of those things, which I can do, and I do. But like... I'm still a trans person in America, even if I have fancy embroidery on. So one of the first things that happened after I was elected is I went and got fitted for a bulletproof vest, right? Because I'm a dignitary and, and committed to showing up even in the midst of all that is hard and trying to be transparent about my experience so that folk who don't have the same level of power and privilege, um, One, we'll know what to do on their way to meetings, like Google, if you could go to the bathroom and do these things, right? And two, because if some of these laws are being put in place all over the country by people of faith, then there needs to be a really big reminder that trans folk are people of faith too, and that, you know, you put a stumbling block in front of faith if you put a stumbling block in front of trans people. So having said kind of all of those bits. Um, Part of the way that I kind of think about the work that I'm up to and being able to do things within this geography is that, number one, I've been elected for six years to, to do this, right? People knew who I was, like the word trans was a part of the conversation during the election. Um, I said to people like, this is going to get a ton of press. Um, and I think people are fine with there being people on the news who aren't on the news because they need to scream at a group of people, but are on the news because they want like justice. So they're looking for that kind of change. And that, uh, I think has been a really interesting blessing, like to be elected to an office you didn't necessarily imagine was possible for yourself in some ways is healing. And in some ways are like, well, you spent a lot of time like saying all the change that needed to happen, like big gulp, put up or shut up. So here's the moment. Like, can we work from inside the system? And I think that's, that's where maybe all the activist theologians need to have this moment of like, what happens when the screaming turns to laughter, right? What happens when you're elected to do the thing for all these years you said needed to be done? Will we have the ability the willingness, the humility, I think a lot of it is humility, to work inside of a system and bring about the change we've always known needs to be needed. On the day when the when your oppressors call and they say, we've changed our mind and we're ready for you to lead us, what's your answer? And for some people, the answer is peace out, like no thanks, like too much harm is done. And for some other people, it's going to be like, well, great. Now let's imagine what this looks like from a queer lens. Like who are the other people I hire going to be? 
how are we going to try to do things differently? And I think part of that, part of my being a let's get our hands dirty person is like this realization that like there were a lot, like thousands of people had to take the hurdles out of my path for me to get down this road. Right. They, the, they say the history is that I'm the first trans bishop, but I didn't do a thing. Other people voted. The history is that hundreds of Lutherans elected the first trans bishop. Right. And so if we remember that it takes people to remove the hurdles, then my job is not to be like, here we go, y'all. Like, yay, I'm the trans bishop. Like, I got all my stuff. I'm sitting here. Like, I'm going to make some rules now. It's really more like now which groups need me to remove hurdles so that they can be the next bishop. And, and maybe it's partly because of my parent heart, but I want all of the pastors of diverse skin tones and ethnic backgrounds and immigrant status to be able to have opportunities in our church. And so that means maybe if meetings are a white people model of thinking that's how you organize a church, then we can learn from other folk who for a long, long time have been saying, you know what, I don't know you if I didn't eat a meal with you. Mm-hmm. And I don't know you if we didn't work together on something. And, and, this idea that I think we can learn from, from lots of diverse communities. Like Black Church has been doing this for forever. It might be a revelation that Bishop would like pull their sleeves up, but like it's, it's, I think it's more of a revelation for, for mainline denominations that are primarily have been led by white leadership. And so my hope is that as we become more diverse, our methods of being leaders will name all of the wisdom that has happened in all of the years. And so I want to be a part of that. Like, Mm. like where can we, how can we lift up as many diverse leaders as possible? How can we like honor the ways that have worked for lots of different communities, even if they weren't the ones where like, we're going to have a minority, a majority vote. And like, cause the Holy spirit doesn't need, a second in order to move wherever the heck she wants to. And so um, it's a scary thing because how funny, like it's weird to like finally be in a position of power and then be like, let's have less power. Right. But I think it's more about like, how can we get better forms of communication and honor the things that have been happening and, and encourage more connections into the future and, be open to what God is up to, even if it's scary or hard or difficult. And yeah, that's, 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 those are some of the things I'm thinking about. I've only been a bishop now for uh, 44 days. So you have to have me back in like a year and be like, yeah. now what do you think a bishop is? Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I love your story because you are making other people the hero of the story. And you're decentering yourself, which is a great model of leadership. And and many of us can learn um, how to be better leaders when when we make other people the heroes of our stories instead of making ourselves the hero of the stories. That's why I always do collaboration. Um, I, I'm not interested in being a talking head. I'm happy to write a book, but let's include other voices in the book. Anyways, um, what people might not realize is that um, – People like you, people like me and other people receive uh, hate mail, death threats, um, and, and, and I'm struck by just your blatant honesty about uh, once you were fitted, fitted for your fancy outfit, you also had to go f- get fitted for a bulletproof vest, and you – you would think that living in the Bay Area, um, that would not be a problem. But um, I, I have also lived in the Bay Area where I was followed by the alt right. Um, I was out there for for um, the counter protest in in 2017, and um, it is not a friendly place to difference for those of us who are outlaw preachers and. Um, and I'm wondering if you could help us and help our listeners connect the dots uh, between, you know, I mean, there 
I've written about why I left the Bay Area and, and moved home to the South and whatnot, but could you help? You've, you've stayed. You've been there a long time. Could you help connect the dots around why why this place, which on the surface is like a queer utopia, is actually quite a dangerous place for difference? Because I don't, I don't think people have the grasp um, of that. Well, I think it's kind of like... Um, I'll use, I'll try to use like examples that don't trigger people. Right. But like, so imagine that like you thought cotton candy was evil and there was a town that was like world famous for selling cotton candy. You would go to the cotton candy factory and you tried to burn it down. Right. So I think because the Bay area and San Francisco in particular is kind of known as a space that is welcoming and safe for the LGBT community, when you want to hurt people in the LGBTQ community, you go, I know what neighborhood they live in and I can just drive there and hurt them. And so I think that's part of it. I think another part of it is like just being a public figure is hard in general. Like the dynamics of, of being able to like say what you want in Twitter with any sort of account that you want to, um, I think is part of it because it, if you knew, like if the person had to like put their address on a self-addressed envelope and then mail it to you and you could tell from the postage mark that the threat came from Ireland, it feels very different. You're like, okay, that person's going to have to fly a long time to get here. It's going to cost them a lot. They're probably not likely to do something harmful. And I think it's, it, we live in a world now where it's, it can be hard to tell where a, a threat is coming from. And, um, I think there's kind of always been connections between uh, addiction and mental health and access to weapons and firearms and um, things that may make it more likely for someone to do self-harm. Because I honestly think when people are threatening other people, it's, it's more of a self-harm than intending to harm the person that they're harming. Um, but I just think there's a lot of people when you get to a certain level of kind of professional life, that that's their reality. And it's doubly hard if you're LGBTQ, it's triply hard if you're a person who has diverse skin tones or other ways that you are discriminated against in the world. And I think, um, the interesting thing is that when I was just a pastor of a small congregation who did a lot of justice work and got press and news because I would do these big justice projects because we couldn't afford an ad in the paper to be like, hey, come here for Easter. So we had to like do a big thing, right? I got more hate mail just being a small pastor of a space than now. I thought I was going to be, I thought like if you go on Good Morning America, you're going to get all this crap, right? Because more people will see it in places where it's going to be a problem. And the, the amazing thing I think has been, I've got over maybe hundreds of thousands of people who sent well wishes and congratulations from all over the world. And maybe five people were wrote to say they were grumpy. And it was the like preschool questions that people ask about like body parts, nothing in the realm of harm, knock on something, pray, prayers everywhere. Right? Like we're 40 days in so like ask me again in a year, but like, but I've also known the experience of other LGBTQ bishops and they've had to have substantial robust security. And so right. I just, I would rather be safe than sorry. And right. honestly, like that's the one intersecting thing where people might be like, especially thinking about like everything that's taken place over, over the last 300 years of United States history of like, well, it's kind of weird that like a trans person would be a chaplain for the police department. Well, here's a thing we have in common on a regular basis. We're worried about our safety and how mm -hmm. we can, how we can be out in the world. And we want to make ethical choices about that. And I make different decisions because I have a different job and it's not my job to run towards the emergency until after it's safe. But, um, it does help mm -hmm. if you show up, 
at the things that the SFPD folk need a pastor for. They'll show up at the things that you need the SFPD for. And, right. and, and so I've been very privileged because we have a very, we have a very, uh, like more than 50% of our police department is, is officers of color and they have a giant group of LGBTQ folk. And so oftentimes they'll like, like if I'm having a, trans bishop party they'll send the trans police officer like right so there, there's more diversity here so if you're imagining a different kind of police department i needed to say that out loud um but i have found that like the people who are in the public eye enough to kind of regularly get threats just have a different relationship with the different ways that you can choose to make mm -hmm. safer decisions and so yeah Working with the homeless for a really long time, harm reduction was always kind of my go-to. And so um, on any given event or activity, like my family, we'll have a conversation about what harm reduction is, and then we'll make our own choices. And mm -hmm. I find that I was a lot more comfortable with the amount of risk before I had children. Mm -hmm. And so how I feel how I feel being at an event where my children are watching the event happen and the kind of um, safety choices I make at that kind of event is very different than yeah. the kind of safety choices that I made kind of before I had children watch it. Like, cause when I was doing homeless work for 12 years, I would for one week each year sleep on the streets with all the homeless folk and all the risks and dangers that come along with that. But um, yeah, to be able to tell my family, uh, I will, uh, no matter what happens next in this day, I will have a bulletproof vest on. Sometimes if it's only for my family, that's fine. On other days, if it's for, for protection of a thing happening, then, then that's fine too. But I think most important is that I'm like right with my family mm -hmm. and right with my own mortality and right with knowing what that means. And, and so that means that like, in addition to planning a big fancy service, I have to have a Google Drive somewhere with like videos saying goodbye to my kids in case I'm not around or a video saying goodbye to the community, right? In the same way that Harvey Milk had a tape just in case. And so, I mean, may this be a story where everyone was safer than expected and a story where God was up to stuff. But if it's not that case, then like my hope is that people will fix all the laws that make trans people unsafe yeah. and, and know that whatever you imagine trans people were up to, apparently a non-trans person was up to something yuckier. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if people use that as an opportunity to love each other the best they can, as long as they can, as if they might not see them tomorrow, then, then I think we're doing okay. But, um, I don't know. I, I, I was remarking yesterday when I came home uh, from one of my trips visiting folk uh, that for the last 20 years, I've had a whistle on my keychain. And some people might not know that it's normal for LGBTQ folk. Like they just hand them out in the Castro. Yeah. Like if you are attacked, blow this whistle. And here are the signals for people to come find you. Like yeah. there's not a lot of communities that are like, yeah, I got a whistle on my keychain because just at any moment, because of my haircut, because of my car, because of whatever, right? I might need this whistle. And so it just, I, I feel like I realized it when, I think it was harder for me when I like was trying to hire people to work in the bishop's office. Cause I had to say to each one of them before they accepted, like, here's what my life is like. And you might not be aware that people have to think about their safety this mm -hmm. much. And so, or like, if, if we're traveling somewhere, it, is there a staff person near enough to the bathroom that they can hear if I shout, but not hear things that you don't want to overhear your colleague? Like, you don't want to have someone be there to, like, listen to see if you fart, but you want right. someone to listen to see if you need help. And right. it's just a different way of being in the world. And to, you know, take back that veil of safety yeah. from folk who haven't been living that way. You know, it's something I just wanted to be really kind about. And if there were folk that I thought maybe, you know, because it's not usually just the person that people would want to take out that get hurt. And so, um, 
So if you're if you're if you've got folk out there who are the praying kind and they're thinking we should pay pray for Bishop Megan, also pray for all the people who work with me because yeah. they're taking the same sort of risk. Yeah. Sure. I mean, what you're illustrating for us is you know, really the the result of the way that supremacy culture has embedded itself in the mainline church, um, not just in the mainline church, but in our instance and for this conversation today in the mainline church and in the response to um, a lot of the work that the mainline church um, is doing in the world. Um, I wonder about your capacity for hope or your ability to um, maintain a level of optimism about where you see the capital C church um, having the ability to head. Um, you know, as, as you know, the United Methodist Church is embroiled in um, what, you know, has needed to be a split for, for many years. Um, the ELCA, uh, the, the, uh, Lutheran Church and the Presbyterian Church and have already, you know, kind of waded those waters. And yet there are still challenges that arise with the way that we understand supremacy um, in our midst and in that permeates everything from the way we host meetings, the way we structure our, our liturgy, um, the way we um, are in service and who we are in service to or with. But what is your hope? What is your, where does your optimism lie for the mainline church as it looks at issues around, um, uh, around supremacy culture and how that has permeated um, the lives of those who live as queer leaders or folk in the church or um, those who have aspirations to do the kind of work that you're doing one day in a denomination that um, makes it not just improbable, but virtually impossible. Well, I mean, I think my hope is rooted in, in, in maybe the story of, of, me at six where my my parents were getting divorced and my dad at the time was a pretty violent alcoholic and i remember going into like our childhood home to like see if everything was destroyed or if some of our toys were there to like collect them as like a last walk through kind of our house and there were there was nothing there but i remember walking down this hallway that used to have like floor to ceiling mirrors like on closet doors and there was just glass all over the hallway and I remember walking through it but I had this like deep unshakable sense and it just felt like it was from God that I was going to be fine and so for me my kind of sense of hope and like knowing that things are going to be fine if that's what if that's what hope is these days is just even the idea that things will be fine um, or, or even joy to be able to cheerlead for other people kind of comes out of this idea that like, yeah, the world is broken. The world is messed up sometimes. Um, things are chaotic, but God will show up. And I think that's why I even like when I'm talking about like diversity or like church, but the ways in like mainline churches or church institutions, people who are like scheming, like how should we grow our Sunday worship service and, and what should all our policies be on a national level are smart and wise, but it kind of comes with this idea that like buildings are where God shows up and worship services are where God shows up. And my connection with God is that God's always showing up like God's in the mountain God's in the sunset God's in the kid who's laughing God is in the the Native American rituals God is in God is in all the things God is even in the space between our atoms where there is nothing because the nothing also has God showing up and different cultures name it in different ways and I, I don't mean that in a in a way that that redefines someone else's faith to be like oh, telling them that 
it's Jesus. But for me, where I notice God and where I notice Jesus is that God is always showing up. And so like, if a individual building is not successful or sustainable or has to be sold, that does not mean that God was sold or that God doesn't exist on that corner. And so if you notice God everywhere, it doesn't matter if the institutional churches are successful or change because God always shows up, right? And we know that because at least at least for us talking with each other in this space and probably for many people listening, God has showed up for us even when the institutional church was like, God ain't showing up for you. And we're like, uh-huh, God's like here. God served me lemonade and there's a rainbow and unicorns and they're dancing, right? God shows up. And, and so I think if, if we keep remembering that, that it's like there's no on off switch for God and there's no on off switch for faith. There might be ways in which we have been harmed and damaged and we have to redefine how faith is connecting to us or how we're reconnecting with our faith. Then it's like nothing about good order makes God show up more. Mm. Sorry, Presbyterians. But I once went to I once went to a, a devotion. They called it a devotion, but it was a reading from the Book of Order in a Presbyterian church about how God loved order, and mm. then they were so happy. It gave them hope, right? So if God can give you, if hope can come out of the Book of Order, hope can come out of the mountains, and hope can come out of the internet, and hope can come out of the vibrating of our voices. Martin Luther used to say that the one moment when God actually showed up in worship was when our breath synced, when we sang, not because of the words we sang, not because of the notes we sang, but because our breathing synced. And so I feel very confident that regardless of what happens with polity and policies, and I'm still going to try to do my best at that. I clearly care a lot about it. I'm going to go to all those meetings now. Right. And I'm going to read all the ancient books and I'm like, right. I care very much about that. And the hope comes from the fact that if we screw it up miserably, even if we enjoy screwing it up, we can't screw up what God did 2000 years ago. Right. And God's going to show up for us now and tomorrow mm. and in ways that hopefully heal us and bring justice. And if we can be people who try to unclog that ever flowing stream. Great. If not, God's going to show up. Mm. That's the word right there. Megan, thank you so much. Really, this has been um, uh, this has been the conversation I needed to have. I hope that for many of the rest of you, this is a conversation <laughs> that that you enjoyed. Um, I know I'm I'm ready for the altar call. I know, right? I know who's passing the plate. Um, You're Lutheran. I heard it. Confirmation. Yeah. <laughs> Come on back, y'all. Um, ha- have how how can our listeners um, uh, keep? touch with you, find you, watch your FaceTime lives, um, see what you're tweeting. What's the best way for those who are listening to this episode to be, um, uh, to, to, to just touch base with you and, and see what you're up to in the world? Yeah. So if you know how to spell my last name, which has an H in it, in a surprising way, you are, you can type that in. But if you just type in Lutheran Bishop Megan, or even just Lutheran Bishop at this point, there's been so much press, um, you can find a bunch of stuff. We do weekly, every Wednesday, we do live stream of prayer. We just lift up whatever people online want to pray about. We're going to start doing a bunch of justice conversations um, and most everything live streamed and archived. If you're a Facebook person, find it on Facebook. If you're an Instagram person, find it there, YouTube, wherever you want to find it. Um, Or, you know, you can email me. I ain't going to be mad at you. I I try to answer them all. Uh, whatever way it feels the best for someone to connect, you can connect that way. Perfect. I love that. We'll share your socials in the show notes. We're not going to share your email because yeah, <laughs> that's a boundary for me. I'm like, let, like, let's not put all of it out there. Y'all can Google it. It's out yeah. there. <laughs> right. Well, Dr. Robin, um, this, this, this conversation has been one that I really enjoyed and I am grateful that you were, uh, here for it too. I'm grateful that you're with me every week, but I'm especially grateful today that you're here for it. Um, 
And uh, friends, you can follow us at Activist Theology. Don't forget that activist and theology share a T. Um, we are going to be updating you really soon on a really great project that we're a part of for the Activist Theology Project, a way that you can be more engaged in this conversation. It's happening. It's already on, happening. It's already happening on your device, on that little mini computer that you carry in your pocket or your handbag or your Merce or whatever you carry around uh, the world. Um we have some exciting news coming up, so please do stay tuned for that. And until next week, we will say goodbye and get your hands dirty in the work and figure out where liberation is for you. Um, because as Dr. Robin always reminds us, it's time to get free, y'all. We want to thank you for listening this week. We encourage you to share this podcast with your community. If you enjoy us and our work in the world, please give us five stars on your podcast platform. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.com and click on podcast. We can only do this work with the help of you, our listeners. You have no idea how much even a small monthly or one-time gift means to this work. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by Delta Ray. Our sound editor is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. I get my hands dirty. I show up so early. They show me no mercy. So I just keep working. Maybe God could save me. Oh, my boss might pay me. You are listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our friends.